Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is artist Nathaniel Rulo. We talk about Rulo's childhood, influenced by his indigenous Ogallala Lakota Nation artistic heritage, rural western Nebraska life, and a love for theatre, which he pursued academically and professionally across the country. Rulo also shares his personal awakening to indigenous rights and stories, which he explores in a fusion of contemporary and traditional visual arts. I am still of the belief that the same depths of the human soul can be reached without being put through bad things. <laughs> like it's, it's that whole like suffer for your art thing. It's like, well, you can do that, but if you're forcing it, then I think that's just as bad to me as not having anything in your life to like inspire you. Nathaniel Rulo is an award-winning artist and culture worker currently located on unceded land of the Umaha and Uchete Chacoin in Nebraska. A partner, father, and member of the Ogallala Lakota Nation, his work combines modern art with traditional indigenous imagery. He is a founding member of Unceded Artist Collective. Recently, he created work for Opera Omaha's 2023-2024 season and the National 2022 Indigenous Futures Survey. In addition to creating visual art, he is a classically trained actor and educator. He received his MFA in theatre from the University of Houston's School of Theatre and Dance after receiving a BA in theatre performance at the Johnny Carson School of Theatre and Film at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. Nathaniel Rulo, welcome to Lives. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. So could you tell me a little about your childhood then? What what stands out to you? What what was your childhood like? Sure, I'll try. I uh, I grew up in like the panhandle of Nebraska. So I, I grew up in Bridgeport, Nebraska, which is a very small town, um, not all the way to Baird or like Chimney Rock yet. Um, but I was born like in Scottsbluff, Nebraska is kind of the the hub out there, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But uh in Bridgeport, you know, very small town. My my father was an English teacher there. Uh he directed the plays at the school. He uh, was also a wrestling coach. And then I have an older brother who was who went to school there. My mom, I was born and kind of raised in like a small kind of like farmhouse outside of town. And um, a lot of time kind of like playing outside, a lot of uh, adventures through the uh, little like wooded areas and that kind of thing. Or going on hikes by uh, Courthouse and Jailhouse Rock or, or areas out there. And uh, I tell people a lot of times it was a very like leave it to beaver kind of childhood where it was just like riding bikes around, going to the pits, which are like the small lakes out there, fishing in riding bikes to the gas station to buy Tootsie Rolls for a penny and everybody knew dad. And so, you know, people knew me from a little kid who would hang out around the wrestling mats or be running around in the, on the audience, you know, during play rehearsals and that kind of thing. And, um, you'd walk down the street and see another teacher and they'd have candies sitting by the door or something, you know? So it was very like, um, really kind of quaint <laughs> growing up, I guess. And then we moved to the Lincoln area, um, when I was in middle school. And so that was like a very big change in my life, especially like that age was like a, like a difficult age to move. It feels like, but, uh, part of the promise was that in Lincoln and Omaha in this area, there's more opportunities for theater and the arts and that kind of thing. So it was a good move. <laughs> You've mentioned to me both on air just now and, and off air, a real diversity of influences here. So you make a reference to leave it to beaver as a kind of childhood cultural reference point, uh, which not a part of my cultural upbringing. So I'm, I'm pretty sure that sounds like a slice of Americana that most yes. people are going to know. Also though, you've alluded to this kind of creative background to many parts of your family, whether it's uh, your father teaching theater. You shared with me that Rulo, your last name has sort of French origins, but also it's clear, and we'll talk about this too, that you have an ethnic cultural heritage as well that is indigenous as well. Yeah. There's a lot of influences happening here. Were you aware of all of those things making up a part of who, who you were sorting through as you evolved into this identity that you have? Sort of, yeah. I mean, it, it, at the time, not really. I think my, my folks worked really hard. And I think a lot of the man, mentalities of like 90s and 80s existence in America was 
to hold back or restrain or to hide anything that made you different or other. And um, that's something that over my lifetime has culturally shifted here or has been the big push. And I feel like a lot of like our world right now is this sort of hopefully sort of like dying breath of of that sort of oppression still kind of like, you know, weighing us down. You know, I was raised in the same world as most Americans here. But at the same time, you know, my grandpa grew up on the res. He was known as an Oglala Lakota artist. He had a, an amazing career as an artist. He's worked at the Smithsonian, worked at the Nebraska Art Museum. I mean, all over the country. And um, I uh, often, when I describe my work, especially now that I have my fingers in so many pies, <laughs> is, is like that I'm a storyteller. And I think that like part of that in education and in arts comes through naturally for a lot of us. You know, my grandfather's life, his work was really important to me even at that time because it was kind of my closest connection to like my cultural identity. And, um, you know, it was through grandpa, through his art shows, through uh, travels and visits with him that we would go to powwows and we, and we'd do these, these activities are parts of who we are and our history that like wasn't there every day in that leave it to beaver little uh, Western Nebraska town, partially just because of the like amounts of racism that happened out there. Uh, my grandfather's like favorite story he ever told. I, I love telling it so much, I would, but um, he was teaching Garing, Nebraska a long time ago. This is way before me. Um, and Garing is part of Scott's Bluff. It's kind of slow, but he was, he was an art teacher there. He wore his hair traditional. So he had long, long hair. And um, one day, like there was, he got called in the principal's office and it's like, Don, I'm sorry, but like, there's, there's a dress code here and we get all these parents have been complaining about your long hair and, and they want something done about it. And there's just nothing we can do. And, they're like, we're afraid we're going to have to have you cut your hair. And he's like, wait a second, I have like an idea. So the principal reached out to these parents who had been complaining about this like native guy's long hair teaching this class. And they said, I'm so sorry about the confusion, but like Mr. Rouleau is a guest teacher from France. And in Paris, it's like a cultural thing. It's a European thing to wear your hair long. And so we're going to allow it and stuff. And the complaints went away like that. <laughs> and um, grandpa always got a kick out of that. Like he had pulled one over on him because like at the time, the closest he had ever been to Paris was Omaha. So... <laughs> he always kind of had like little stories like that. And I could put together the pieces that through his life, he had done a lot to kind of push back against the like racism and struggles and own issues that came with his generation's navigation of identity. And um, that kind of goes back. Like the, you're asking about like the French name Rouleau comes back from like a French fur trader who had many quote unquote, like Indian wives. And it was his son, Nicholas Rouleau, who's my great, great grandfather was the first in my family. He was one of the first students at Carlisle Indian boarding school. And so that history is this, is this moment and is this like actual observable moment in my family history where the trajectory of my family's identity was shifted forever. He was sent to this school across the country where he didn't know anybody. He couldn't go home. His hair was cut. His language was, was taken from him and it, everything was his religion, his culture, his food, his, his language. And, and um, there's always been stories of that, but all grandpa would ever really say was just that he was brainwashed at the school and he would end up trying to send his kids to different boarding schools around the country too. And many of them went, many of them would run away and they, they had their own kind of struggles in that next generation. But it's this weird observable moment where things were shifted and every generation since then has had to kind of fight to get a lot of that back. As you said earlier, you're perhaps best known right now for your visual work. But you've also shared this love of theater and also how that seems to have lived in previous generations too. And it occurs to me that theater itself is a way for us to explore other points of view, other characters, other identities. It's a way to unpick some of those things. I'm curious what it was that you really were drawn to in theater. I think a lot of it was that storytelling and a lot of it was kind of like an escapism from the like as quaint or as kind of a like wholesome like spin saying something has to leave it to beaver feel to it also comes with a lot of baggage and a lot of white supremacist constructs in our society and in our in the art world in general where I think like there was this big push for kind of an escape from things. I, I have very loving supportive parents and I have my whole life and we've had our own struggles as everyone does throughout a life. but um. Even through that, I still felt as though there was more to life and wanted to kind of get out and see that. And some of that was, well, I can use my imagination and storytelling 
to go to those places, to experience these things. Eventually, it got to a point where people just said I was good at that. So I just kind of kept with that. When I went to college, I was a double major in theater and journalism. So I was kind of trying to balance those two worlds for a while. And I started working at the campus paper. And um, while all that was going on, there were a lot of like college age influences <laughs> at the time. And um, I uh, got really into theater and, and, and my mind got open so much. Something I learned about in grad school, I guess, was this like need for people in the theater world to ingest as much of it as you can, as many scripts as you can, see as many shows as you can, just to really fulfill your uh, like data bank of what to pull from. And although I, my parents were taking me to the lead center to see the music man come to town, um, it wasn't until college where I started seeing some of these grittier plays. You go to Mammoth and then it was Killer Joe or it, different Tracy Lett stuff. And, and, and there were different ways to think about things and got into like Meisner work. And, and it just became even a bigger world to kind of play in that where you could really explore a lot more of humanity. So I really got in, in more of that. And then in journalism, I kept butting up with heads of like, I'm not, I'm a bad speller. And sometimes I get grumpy about being edited. <laughs> and um, these things were kind of bumping heads with the concept of being a journalist. I got really into Hunter S. Thompson at the time, and I got really into beat writers. And so I was reading a lot more plays, but also a lot more literature. And at the time, you know, like the Occupy Wall Street movement was just kind of gaining traction. There was a lot to be frustrated about the housing market crisis. <laughs> I mean, there are all these big world things going on that like me as a, as a young college kid didn't, was, was trying to figure out like where I fit in that and how it would affect me. And I got really into like stories and struggles of the 60s and 70s. And I got into telling other people's stories. And that's what I was, I was studying. And um, I dropped the journalism degree, picked up a creative writing minor. And I started doing like a column for the paper that was loathing last weekend. And I would go to these different parties around campus. And I'd be like, my name's Steve. Like I'm, I, I'm thinking about joining the rugby team. And I'd party with the rugby team. And then I'd write a kind of first person column story about it for the paper that week. And I really got into doing that kind of thing, but I was kind of exploring that way a little bit more like what it means to kind of tell my story versus telling the stories of others. Theater was going really well. And I didn't know what I wanted to do after college right away. And I had an amazing professor who was like, you should go to grad school. You should go to grad school somewhere. You should go to grad school for free. <laughs> you should be paid to go to grad school. And um, that's the way to keep this thing going without having to move to Chicago, New York, or LA right away out of undergrad and, and claw your way to something. And so that's the kind of the path I took. And, that, and that's what took you then to Houston to study theater and dance as, at, a, at a master's level in, in Houston. So what was the experience in Houston and, and what was the pivot to visual arts? Well, I was excited about that program mainly because they were kind of known as like the, the Marines of Shakespeare is kind of like what people would say. My grad school experience, though, it's it, looking back, it's kind of hit and miss. It was a, a quick program. And then it was a really difficult program. People talk about them. It's often compared to that drum movie, um, Whiplash, where the kind of abusive drum teacher, you know, gets him to the point where his person breaks and then he's the best drummer ever. But like at what sacrifice? And there were a lot of things that I learned in that program where, where at the time it's like, oh, man, this like abuse or this. This stuff is going to force out art and passion and feelings. But by the time I was out and when I started to experience the real world and not college for the first time in my life in a long time, I really found that like there was a lot to that program that could have been done in a way that was more support and love and, and openness. And I am still of the belief that the same depths of of the human soul can be reached without being put through bad things there. <laughs> like uh, without um, it's, it's that whole like suffer for your art thing. It's like, well, you can do that, but if you're forcing it, then I think that's just as bad to me as not having anything in your life to like inspire you or something like that. But so I, I got out of grad school. I got a job right out of grad school at the great American melodrama in vaudeville, which is um, the central coast of California real like tourist trap on highway one. My partner was, she was still down in Houston. We'd moved down together and she was working for an NPR station down there. And, um, we weren't sure what we we're going to do after this, you know, after this job was done and I'd been away for a couple months. And so we're trying to figure out what the next step is going to be. 
And she applied to KPCC, the NPR station in Los Angeles in Pasadena, and got the job. We found a spot. We moved out there. And so we were in Pasadena for a while where she's working at NPR. And I was doing auditions for films and commercials and doing extra work and then walking rich people's dogs and working at a Barnes & Noble and doing little theaters here and there as I could. And we move around a lot. Me and my wife had at this point in our lives. And so we were in LA for years, but it was kind of like just as we were starting to figure it out, kind of a new opportunity came along. And so we kind of switched up again, but um, she, then NPR proper came calling. And so she got a job in DC. And then like, I was working at this theater that was kind of outside of town for a while. I've also like, I guess throughout my career from grads, from that grad school experience being like, I don't know if this, this environment is kind of toxic. I don't really like how a lot of this stuff's going. I don't like a lot of the way I'm seeing peers treated. And then um, during that time, part of the program was, it was a two-year program, but they said it was kind of three-year because you had to take, you had to have a job when you left and you had to have a job in between the years. So um, you do these auditions around the country and if you got a job, you would have to take it. And if you didn't, you got to work at Houston Shakespeare Festival. But my best friend and I, um, we went to Johnny Carson together, him and me and my wife moved down to Houston together because he got into the program too. The middle of the year between the first year and the second year, we both got jobs at Tecumseh Outdoor Drama, which is this large outdoor drama. It's like one of the biggest in the country. Middle of nowhere, Ohio, Chillicothe, Ohio. It's on this hill. Started looking into things more. And then I found that they did red skin makeup. And I was like, this is, this is a problem. <laughs> and uh, the job offer came. And my friend Mike, five foot nothing redhead guy I was talking about, was cast as the old Indian chief. And I was cast as the white preacher <laughs> in the show. And um, it was a big point of conflict for me. And I went to the professors. We both kind of did. We're uncomfortable with this show. Like, we don't want to take this job. We'd rather say do Houston Shakes or something. And they're like, we'll kick you out of the program if you don't take the job. So we went up there and, I, and the actor cabins are basically like uh, where dads keep their lawnmowers in backyards. It's a very small little shed with three military cots where you and the two other men you'll be staying with will live for these next several months. Uh, there wasn't Wi-Fi or cell service and we're working all the time. And, uh, and yeah, they're spraying red every night. And then uh, we do these big fights and tell this story of Tecumseh that, you know, they said, you know, the tribe approved it way back in the day. And it's this beautiful thing. And everyone there has this big deep seated, you know, Oh, we're telling, we're doing such a, we're doing such a favor for all the dead Indians out there who don't exist anymore, telling their story about how strong they were and stuff. And I'm standing in a U.S. military outfit with a rifle watching uh, audience members go up to the white people dressed as Indians with red makeup on their bodies being like, take a selfie scalping me. Like, dude, you know, it was just this awful experience that I had. I got tuberculosis up there and it was just like tuberculosis. Jeez, <laughs> I got pneumonia when I was up there. I mean, it was just like a lot of like different stuff happened, but um, just an awful experience and really like was like, wow, this is what being a working actor is like. If you don't have like a certain path, if you're not already union, you know, like these are the kind of jobs you have to take. So when we were in DC, that was kind of the next theater. I eventually, you know, had been auditioning around and I was doing theater education at like a, like an amazing theater up there, Roundhouse Theater. At the same time, I was working at this theater that was like, we're, we're, we're just, we're just kind of getting started and stuff, but like, here are these things in the contracts, you know, we're non-union. So you come here and you do your stuff. And then it was just like, there was always like another thing added on or another safety measure not taken or another this or another sick performer forced to go on stage until they pass out or like, it was so bad. And then I hadn't been there for very long. So then as I'm working there, I'm finding out there's this terrible reputation of this theater as like the source of this kind of uh, treatment. The like systems of white supremacy are so strongly built into theater here. One of the, you know, like tenets of like white supremacist culture is this like, this especially deals with like time and urgency. And that's kind of what all theater is kind of based on and how we format stuff. But it's, it's a job where if somebody gets a flat tire on the way to work at an awful day, and they're just ripped a new one and shamed for everyone. And everyone's pit, everyone's angry at them. <laughs> and, um, and I felt that at people too. And now, uh, now that I have a child, now that I understand that there are things going on in life, especially when your passion is not able to support you fully as a person, it was a lot of that kind of stuff started like grinding me down a little bit. At the same time, I had some of the, I had like the most film work in my career in DC because I, I got this job as a West Virginia lotto bro. So the West Virginia lottery hired me and one other DC actor to come out and there were these funny skits where it'd be like, Hey man, you should buy a lottery ticket. You could win. And 
and be like, uh, you know, I have a better chance of being struck by lightning. And then it cuts to us at a golf course and we get struck by lightning. And they like them so much. We got brought out for like personality gigs as the characters. So we would flip coins at football games and we would come to the state fair and shake hands and do selfies and stuff. And then we did radio promotions. They brought us back for a second year. And I was making a living as an actor for kind of the first time at that peak too. But at the same time as like, well, I'm finally doing full-time, like all acting theater work. Man, a lot of this has a lot of downsides to it right now. And around that same time, my partner and I were at this point in our relationship where we were like, we kind of want to start a family and have a child. <laughs> and um, what could that look like? So that's kind of where like the switch started to happen. So it sounds as if just at that point where perhaps you could make a living from performing, you'd had enough bad experiences with it that you were confronting some of this toxicity as well as some life changes. And so it seems as if the visual art that you've created is a response to some of those experiences and perhaps a way to present a different perspective on the issues that you shared around what it is to be indigenous, to have a culture uh, that has been diminished in many ways. Is that the catalyst? And, and how did that show up in, in the visual art that you were creating? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I tell, I say this a lot. I tell folks like the further away from Chimney Rock I've ever gotten in my life, the more people think that Native Americans are Indians and that Indians are dinosaurs that like, don't exist anymore. That change happened even across the state, even moving in from middle school, from that being part of my identity and being around other Native people and being able to go up to Hesapa and go up being around my grandfather. It was just the regular part of my existence in life and the panhandle where I didn't really think about it. It was just like part of my family history and part of who I was. And until it came up in a class and I'd be like, oh, this is exciting. Cause like even moving to like uh, Waverly, Nebraska, this suburb of Lincoln and going through high school there, like people just didn't think that we were real. <laughs> and that was weird. Whenever it came up, it was all about like my hair length. Around in high school was kind of the first time I grew my hair long. And then as an actor, it's like I always, I just grow my hair out until the next job would need me to look a certain way and, and, and do something like that. But uh, so it was around then. And then when, you, when I got into college, it was that's when I first started to run into more like my grandfather at one point was he received an award, a Nebraska Educators Award, and was kind of in the news and the city and stuff. And I remember other college kids like bringing it up or whatever. We were talking about it. And like, you know, people were like, I didn't know you were native and all this stuff. My first experience really with this was like, college roommates like oh yeah you know like my great grandma was like a Cherokee princess I'm pretty sure so like we're, we've got a little native blood in us too and that's kind of and every time I ran into that it was this big kind of like shutdown or big like identity kind of crisis or, or questioning of like whoa if, if what does this mean like how is that the same as me it's not what, what, so that's where that kind of started to creep up in my life and as an actor it was all about being like as neutral as possible and able to you know I, in grad school they were telling me like you'll be you're gonna have a great career playing Middle Eastern guys it's just like, whoa, like what you, because of my hair, because of my skin tone, like, and I had never at that point ever played a native character. And even when I was in the native show, I wasn't playing a native character. So when I got into DC, there was a huge conflict between like the length of my facial hair between the commercials and the plays I was doing. And, and so it was like, I had to be neutral, a neutral human to get more work is what I was at least told. And so that's kind of like where a lot of that was and everywhere I went. And then I go down to Texas and it's a completely different understanding of what a native person was. And then when I got to DC, I was to live in there when the football team had their old name. And so I had friends who were super progressive and loved the team and stuff. And, just, and they didn't understand why I would be like, nah, man, I do not like this mascot. It is a problem. It's something that's tied directly to like suicide rates on reservations. Like, it, like facing that for a lot of my life, you know, it was like still to get back to like, being Lakota, it was about like connecting with grandpa and it was about connecting to like his work and then like my family and, and people when I would come home and I hadn't been home for a long time. Could you describe what your art then looks like? And then we can talk about what you're trying to express through this art. So one image that stands out in my mind that you shared with me, and I don't know its title, but you can it's a collage and you can see the words underneath it. And I think they say, kill the Indian, save the man. 
And so maybe if you could, if that's a good piece, perhaps just to share what your art is, how you're creating it, what it looks like visually, and then perhaps we can think about, you know, what are you trying to share through this work? Uh, you know, I've always drawn and done visual art for myself. Like I was saying, like throughout my whole life from a little kid on. And then when I was doing professional theater, I was also making like kind of Shakespeare themed art and t-shirts and things and pins. I, I was kind of exploring stuff that way a little bit when we were starting to transition a little bit. My, we decided to start a family and I'm kind of winding things down. I've always been pretty like politically active my whole life that Occupy Wall Street time, you know, was where I first kind of started engaging in like actions. After that, you know, I was wrapped up in school and I, during Standing Rock, I was in Houston and I had, my cousin went up there and there was a lot of anger and a lot of big feelings and a lot of, you know, grad school, it was hard to leave if you had a family member die and not get a lot of flack for it. And so, uh, you know, the concept of leaving to go to do something like that was not like on my radar, you know, and just trying to support however I could virtually at that time, which was not much. And then we moved to Los Angeles and, and 45 was elected and it was felt like we were marching at a different themed march like every day. I've also found that it was not healthy or not really doing much to be so broad scoped in my passions and, and, and desires for the world to be better. And so I started thinking a little bit more on specific issues and things that I cared about. And, um, Around that time, you know, there was the, there were different situations that happened when we were living in DC. There was this big thing in the news where uh, an elder, uh, Nathaniel, uh, he had that iconic kind of face off where he was singing uh, in prayer and then these MAGA kids kind of harassed him and, and, and the MAGA kids now have a bunch of money from suing all the news organizations that covered it. But I remember, you know, people who I was working with in the theater that night, you know, like, talking about it and so like interested, but like there was one of those things where like they had just been confronted with a native person in their view in a major way. And so they were like asking all these questions, doing all these things where I ended up going and making a piece of that moment, but with this kind of custer in a MAGA hat in front of Nathaniel. And so, so then like at these different marches and stuff over the years, I've taken a lot of pictures and I was really into Hunter S. Thompson in the visual arts world. I was really into Ralph Steadman starting off. So I would just ink draw uh, different moments for different protests from around the country or signs that I liked. And um, I did a lot of like flicking of ink um, at pieces. And then I really like Ralph Steadman's style of like at the time, especially of like finding something out of these kind of random splashes of ink. And so at the same time as all that stuff, um, I've quit my theater jobs basically because I we've talked about it and it's going to work out best where KB is able to to keep us sustained with her job and I'll be a stay-at-home dad. You know, I was used to late nights, so I was doing good with a uh, newborn and uh, my schedule was kind of fitting in there, but I kind of missed the collaboration and missed people and everybody I knew was at work during the day, except for my grandfathers were retired. So uh, we started talking on the phone a lot more. I talked about family and we talked about history and we talk a lot about his work and his career and there's something about, you know, starting a family where I wanted to have Luca have a lot of information that I felt like I was losing in my older age or didn't have at all, you know? So I, um, started talking with grandpa a lot more and I started drawing these and painting these bison. And that really comes from, he has this piece called the white Buffalo that he, that we had in our home growing up. And it's kind of the painting I'd always come back to. I, it's like, um, kind of traditional, more kind of ledger art style watercolor of this kind of herd of bison. And in the white space between a couple of them is this white Buffalo. And as a kid, I could never see it. It was almost like a doctor's office, like eye tester thing. But then like one day I did see the white buffalo in there and, and it's just the piece I always loved. And so like that really influenced me to start drawing bison. I started it up, you know, we were in a studio apartment in Washington, D.C. And I throw a newspaper all over the kitchen and set up a table and have Lucas strapped to my chest and then just kind of bounce and paint when I could and stuff. So, yeah, so I, I guess that really kind of kicked it off. And then I just started exploring more identity and history and. Uh, talk with my grand grandfather a lot about like from Nicholas on kind of that, that what that boarding school era kind of meant and in a way that as an adult I could more than other points in life and stuff and uh eventually we were just about ready to move back home we'd been out there by ourselves with no support with a baby for a while and uh my partner had worked it out to work remote so we were like oh great so we're gonna go get a house go rent a house in Omaha for the price of the studio apartment and kind of see how things go out there 
And around that time, you know, like an aunt or somebody had shown my grandfather some of my work. And he was like, he's like, I really like the stuff I've seen. Like you should submit it to the Red Cloud Indian Art Show, which is uh, an art show that takes place at Red Cloud Indian School in Pine Ridge. And my grandfather was one of the first artists to ever show there. It meant a lot for him to even suggest that I show something there. Um, I had a cousin who had shown some pottery there and stuff before, but uh, I was excited to try. So I submitted all, I submitted four things that year. They all ended up getting sold and I've shown every year since. It was kind of that moment that really made me go, I'm going to dive into this visual art thing pretty seriously. You shared this attraction to the bison and I've read that you've described it as a symbol of the Lakota spirit, the power of our endangered natural world and a righteous, powerful force for what America should be. And I get this sense from the work of yours that I've seen and, and that you've described to me that you are endeavoring to connect something that is, um, has been rendered culturally by sort of a dominant culture uh, into a past tense, almost eradicated or erased or appropriated to bring that forward, to re-recognize it as it were, to reclaim it, but also at the same time to apply a modern sensibility to the work you do. And I wonder how you're fusing this kind of modern sensibility, your own approach to the future, as well as these historic and important traditional cultural reference points. Totally. Uh, something that I, that I tell people a lot to check out is like this kind of older documentary called Real Engine. And it really covers the history of Hollywood or like American media in general, kind of being one of the main sources of the umbrellaing or lumping together of indigenous peoples of these lands. It comes from America's obsession with getting beat by uh, folks of the greasy grass and, and this obsession with Custer's last stand and the story booking of, of what the West was, right? And um, Hollywood really, and media in general, but like our, our culture erasing and hiding and burying a good, a good way to look at it when you think about like us talking about boarding schools and all the bodies being found right now at Genoa and stuff. Um, it's hiding of wrongs and atrocities committed in genocide through telling this kind of fancy disney story. And it's, there's this history of Westerns and, and films and television are stories that take you know, hundreds of different nations of people with different beliefs, languages, hopes and dreams, cultures, and smushing them all together underneath the, this word of Indian. And this is why you see old Westerns that are taking place in the Southwest, you know, wearing Lakota headdresses saying how, and it's not, that's not the language of the people in this film became so generalized and so Halloween costumed and so mascotted that, um, there was this loss of in our culture and in our art, especially when you look at like that, when I started stepping into things like looking at like the Western art world or even the world of Indian art markets are so tied into this like manifest destiny lie <laughs> that this was an unoccupied land. And I think a lot about like my kid loves this old Disney documentary about elk. He really likes elk and, you know, we watch it and at the beginning of it, they talk about, you know, the Olympic mountains, like we're, or this barren area that's, you know, no sign of life or no, no human existence. And, and it's all wrong. It's, that's all lies. And, and when everything's built off of that, it can lead to a really messy position that we're in now where people are seeking to hopefully look back and grow and do better. And a lot of that comes from just breaking down a lot of these kind of big picture ideas and seeing individuals for who they are and where they come from. And um, a little bit of that with like bison is that like, Bison have been nearly eradicated in the development of this country. The image of them has been so appropriated or used in so many ways to symbolize the Wild West or the taming of the West or, or peop what people wish they like, oh, we, we took that, that beauty away or something. But that drives me bonkers. <laughs> and um, bison are important to Lakota people and have always been. I didn't do this on purpose, but like eventually I started getting into the hundreds of these like bison pieces. And it almost became like an experience of trying to like bring one back into existence for everyone shot from a train. That's kind of where like that kind of came in. At the same time, COVID had just hit when I was really getting into things. I started re reading Notorious Racist, but um, 
Lovecraft stories a lot just because I was dealing with these concepts of like bigger societal ending and <laughs> changing issues. And I was seeing a lot of these kind of like larger than life uh, cosmic horror entities and, you know, thinking, thinking about, there was a lot of the, the earth is healing, right? There's a lot of like that kind of talk. And um, I started like picturing big bison kind of crashing through cityscapes. And so I started making a lot of that kind of imagery and, and would cut blocks and line up blocks and that kind of thing, making prints and then painting it eventually. And then um, there was a really great project um, through Noise Omaha that was a um, civil rights history timeline. And they wanted artists to do work that was kind of about that. And I had just moved back right when they were about to switch the uh, Mutual of Omaha chief logo. And so I did this piece where a giant bison was crashing into the building and knocking that logo off. And so it's kind of the first time of that. And then all of these statues of colonizers and Civil War traders were being toppled all over the country at this time. This is right before 45 was having a big Fourth of July blowout at Mount Rushmore. And so Indian Collective and all these different activists were up there like blocking the road. And it was a really like powerful time. And right before that, I had made this giant bison kind of crashing through Rushmore and kind of toppling this this monument that was made by somebody who was, if not a member, like very close with the KKK and um, has a long history of, of American Indian movement activists and folks trying to bring the truth that is hidden by these giant faces. So I was, I was playing with a lot of that at the time. And these are, this is this, this whole concept of like taking my energy that was focused on how do I fix the world's problems and do, how do I like tackle and raise awareness and focus people on different things happening right now that hopefully they can have an influence on. We were just talking about the fusion of a sort of contemporary practice through enlivened traditional forms and, and symbols to, to share these stories. You also shared earlier, though, some of your theater experiences that were really quite toxic. And again, in, in the context of a much bigger system around the eradication and erasure of identity, cultural identity and, and heritage. And I feel as if your work itself, while pointed and often having a political message, you asked yourself the question earlier, why, why does this theater program in Houston have to be one that feels almost abusive as opposed to trying to tackle it through love and, and some other more positive form? And I feel as if you're describing artwork that tries to connect with an audience in a way that, yes, is political, could be called activist, but at the same time is actually a little more welcoming into the message. I think this was said by a native artist uh, named Greg Deal, who I really love his work. He's really cool. He's out of Boulder. He spoke at UNO recently. He was like, uh, I can draw a cat on a napkin and it's political art. And it's like, not from my own choosing, but like as a product of American genocide, everything I do has an inherent political take to it. When you are the product and, and the survival, if you are <laughs> what remains that we're still here after these huge steps of, of, you know, genocidal expansion, the government has actively worked to make you not exist. So anything you do make almost has that inherently, you know. So that always kind of stuck with me. And then um, in theater, I mean, it's, it's in the arts right now in general. A lot of something that I feel like I've been exploring more or understanding more or coming to terms with more is like, is who gets to tell what stories and who should. I get a lot of pushback from this kind of way that I'm feeling about art. People, you know, will be like, well, who says like, I can't tell that story. And it's like, it's like, I'm not, I'm not coming at you trying to like keep you from things. I'm saying is that person who experienced it or whose story it is or who is closer to that character is going to do it better. It's always going to have more of that connection. It is the goal, I guess, in the theater world to, to explore and learn and sensorially take in as much as you can so you can be closer to that. But if there is somebody telling that story, they should. I've been run to that more in the visual art world recently where I meet folks who, you know, have a subject that um, they don't know anything about. They find it online or something. And then somebody comes in and is like, oh, hey, I have like a personal connection. Like this is from my family's village or whatever. And then the person's like, oh, that's really cool. And I'm just like, why did you use that in the first place? Just because you thought it was a cool. And so anyway, one of the earliest lessons that my grandpa taught me, I did a Spider-Man drawing in school. 
was like, can't wait to show this to grandpa. We like drive it up to Shatter, Nebraska, and like get him in his, in his room or whatever. And I'm like, Hey grandpa, like here's show you my art. And I show him the Spider-Man I did. And he goes, never draw this again. <laughs> and I was like, what, why? What's in? He's like, do you want to get sued? Only ever do your own stuff. Only ever use your own source images, like stick with your story. And, uh, that stuck with me forever. Maybe in a kind of trauma way, but but it's actually helped me. I think I have a limitation. I try to set a limitation for myself to be as authentic to my own experience, which is a multiracial, multi-heritage one by telling my own story and not telling the stories of others, which is really, I kind of think what the umbrellaing, that big media umbrellaing of Native people in general has caused a lot of people to do, which is tell these kind of generalized stories that aren't specific to a person or to an experience. and. Um, I think it makes for kind of boring stuff. Well, this could be a fascinating segue then into asking you to share more about your collaboration with Opera Omaha, because the operas themselves for the forthcoming season aren't necessarily tied in any way to uh, um, any indigenous stories of the Americas, but you were um, invited to be a part of the visual expression uh, around that. Very different, different stories. They're very old. Um, the operas are famous. I'm really curious about how you approached intuiting and interpreting those visually. Yeah. I, I mean, a lot of it, uh, a lot of it came from like really wonderful conversations and, and amazing openness and support from the people at Opera Omaha. Like I can, I could sing their praises all day. Like I, I came back into town it's something that, you know, in my like theater performance that I, Pirates of Penzance is the closest. A lot of people, I talked to the Opera Omaha people, they said that counts, but it's, that's kind of my only experience. But it is something that my dad always played like in examples of Carmen. It was like a CD in his classroom sometimes when kids would like take tests. And uh, that was kind of my first being like, I really like opera and then Looney Tunes and that kind of thing too. But, uh, but when we moved back to Omaha, we, you know, we just kind of got set up. This was right before the pandemic hit. I started, I got a show with, uh, Benson first Friday up at Jake's and really like just like threw all of my stuff up there. And it was, it was really great. And that was kind of one of the first experiences during that first Friday experience. I got to get back in the art world of this town a little bit. I got to see a lot of different work. And I also had people coming up to me who were like, Oh man, like you, I, you never see like native art here. You never, like, like it's so good to see like myself represented or like there were native artists who would come up and be like, we need to, can we collaborate? Can we work together? Like, what can we do? Like, Oh man, like, like this isn't here. And uh, that was really kind of surprising to me. And then um, in that com- in those conversations turned on to Amplify Arts and their different support grants and all the amazing things they do uh, for artists in the city. Like I've worked with them for years now, uh, applying for grants, but also in different programs. And um, with one of those programs, I, I got in touch with a lot. I, I guess I had like connected. This was like, now we're like into COVID. So one of those programs uh, brought a lot of different like arts organizations in town together with um, like 10 uh, like uh, artist fellows. And so we were kind of there. I was very vocal in that space about native issues and about representation and about uh, my feelings about a lot of different things in the art world here. And um, Opera Omaha had me do one of their opera and conversations and I went and saw Romeo and Juliet there and I loved it. The physical work, the folks there have always been really supportive and they reached out about, they're like, we don't know what we've never, we don't know how to do this. And I was like, I don't know how to do it either. Like, so we'll figure it out together. And we had a meeting and they told me the season and kind of discussed about what they were after. And I was like, you know, I could do like um, a series like this. They, they knew they kind of wanted a painting for each thing and maybe a season painting or, and so we were kind of talking about options and it was like, oh, how do we make it all on theme or like, what are symbols in your shows that really stick out? And eventually um, we kind of landed on different flowers that they were kind of imagining would be tied to um, the shows in different ways. And then um, I was like, do you want it like uh, all like uniform or like, you know, what are you kind of thinking? And but one of the last things my grandpa like ever taught me to do was he's, he was kind of known for his silver point work, which is where you actually use like a, this piece of silver and a mechanical pencil and you gesso this piece and your drawing on there is really just kind of scraping and layering silver over and over again to get your shades and your, and your line work and stuff. And then as it ages, it will eventually kind of like oxidize and turn kind of copper and years and years and years. But like, so I asked him to show me kind of like not long before he passed, like how, how to do it. And then um, after he passed, I was given all of his Silverpoint materials. So I started doing Silverpoint and um, that was another thing they liked. So we did these pieces and then my master's degree in theater side kicked in and I watched every show. Um, uh, and then I listened to a couple different different uh, 
you know, albums of the shows. And then so for the uh, a La Triviata one, I was really in, especially in college, I was really into like to lose the track and stuff, too. So I, I wanted to make this kind of flower lino block kind of street art poster of the time. And I made a bunch of them and then kind of layered them. We pasted them onto a canvas in black and white and then kind of had these colors that were kind of these love colors. But there is this like very tragic like illness and, and, and you know, back and forth of love in this story. And so the, the flower is kind of losing petals and there's one kind of buried underneath the stuff. So I actually ended up layering the work and then actually ripping the paper off to then place a, a, a flower that was in color, like at the center of it for the uh, Don Pasquale. We did, uh, I, I wanted to get those three characters. and so. I ended up kind of designing like commedia tropes onto each character of these kind of three growths on the flower. And they, they told me they were going to set it in this kind of industrial setting. So then there's kind of like this brick, but so there's this kind of spray paint tagging old kind of advertising element to it that I wanted. This was part of how great the work relationship was with them. Cause I showed them this and I was like, this didn't turn out exactly like how I want it to. This flower was like very detailed, but kind of small and centered and on this brick and it, should I do something else with this? And like, yeah, go for it. And then I was like, okay. So like I, did this kind of wild take that I want to do, which was like, I put it on a big wheel and spun it and spray painted it. And then did like petals kind of all over and it turned out great. And I was like, Oh wow. Well, like I'm so glad that I was able to like check in with kind of a partner here, have this collaboration. And then for the last one, I wanted, I knew the flower that I wanted to do. And so I did half of it kind of painted and then half of it so like a silver point drawing by that point in time, there was like, we were talking about like, what's your like indigenous spin to this? How is it connected? And, um, a big thing besides like just work I've done in each of those skill sets was um, I was feeling really good about the whole process and I kind of wanted to like have a little kind of like blessing to it. And I had been recently gifted this tobacco. And so I ended up in the center kind of uh, part of the flower, uh, almost where like your, your seeds would be in your sunflower. I ended up uh, like sprinkling tobacco into the piece and it's kind of like second. So it's kind of like as it falls off in different places, it'll be like le- leaving little blessings as they move the piece. But uh now it's there. So that's kind of the connection still. I'm wondering if on this journey that you've been describing in your life so far, which is obviously quite early, if you feel you are making sense of who you are as a person, if the creative work has both um, been a way for you to shape how you see the world, but also how it's perhaps shaped a harmonious sense of personal self-identity. Yeah, I mean, I started working in visual art in, in a big capacity. I'd been working in a certain art form in an expressive way, in a collaborative way for years. I had been hustling as an actor and theater person for so long. And I was still so wrapped up in a pre-COVID mindset of the pressures of my capitalist society and everything that I needed to do and the things that were important. And and I was very fortunate to be in a, you know, safe, secure, relatively stable space at that start of things. I think about like you brought up the kill the Indian, save the man thing, which is the, which was the slogan of Carlisle Indian boarding school where my great, great grandpa went. And, um, I had this residency at, at the union. It was like my first big residency. And so at this residency, I had access to a very large digital printer. And so I used these images of my great, great grandfather, Nicholas Rouleau and his classmates from Carlisle to make these kind of three large images. And there's a wall there that was going to get knocked down. And I mentioned this kind of wheat paste up idea. They're like, you can have that wall. <laughs> it just kind of developed. Like you said, like, you know, my stuff might have political messaging. And like I said, like I, it's on my mind, but I built my process of visual art through that Ralph Steadman practice of making things and finding something out of it. And so I never really have like a big grand scheme <laughs> at the start of it, but I was, I was living in that space. You know, it's, I'm still in Omaha, but it's still, I was, I was part from my family, uh, be able to work late at night. And, you know, I wheat pasted these three images of this point in my family's history where our trajectory was shifted. And then I, you know, spent the next couple of days writing out hundreds of facts and very heavy stuff. And so I started going to different sources, like, you know, I was, I, I documentaries, podcasts, books. Um, and then eventually I used uh, the Native American boarding school health coalition which is this group that works has been pushing for years to digitize records of different boarding schools across our country and also to push for government response and um, reconciliation and recognizing this like really dark part of our history. And I, I spent a lot of time, 
I spent a lot of time prepping that show with, with an explanation that kind of explained the like trauma and triggers that might occur at the, at the show, but also like that I wanted people to see this as the history of, you know, marginalized, oppressed groups in this country, the terrible acts that are inflicted upon them are white history. People like to ask native people to come talk about things a lot. Taika Waititi had a really wonderful talk recently where he was like, he was on a diversity panel or something. And he was like, this is really good that this is a good, important conversation on this stuff. But we're asked a lot to come speak about our histories or what we do or whatever. When we just want to be doing the things that we just want to be making our art and doing these things. And I'm, I'm asked far more to talk about the trail of tears or something that I have no familiar connection to than asked if I can do a mural for somebody. This all kind of came together where people came saw these 100 plus facts laid out, got to read them, firsthand accounts, uh, writings from Nicholas, uh, uh, different quotes from these different sources, pick out one that spoke to them, they learned something about, and then physically paste it over the slogan of kill the Indian, save the man to correct that history and that mindset. I always tend to get overwhelmed by like pulling on too many of these threads to this giant spool of our problems. But like uh, my partner brought my kid to that event. And he was three at the time. Orange is, is, is kind of the color that symbolizes boarding school healing for uh, First Nation peoples in Canada and, and here in the States. And, you know, he pasted the first orange print up, which is one that talked about like healing or the first steps of that. And I used to have this mentality, especially in the theater, where it was all about like, how do I make enough money to scrape by so that I can keep doing the thing that I care about? Where now I'm blessed and fortunate and, and I have enough privilege to be at this space where, you know, I might not be in my DMs on Instagram every day responding to somebody who wants to buy something because that's just not why I'm making it anymore. It's still just kind of self-expression, but a lot of it is making sure that there's something for Luca to have for pieces too, to, to have the puzzle, puzzle kind of halfway done by his time, I guess. My guest today has been artist Nathaniel Rulo. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been it's been just a lot of fun just hearing your stories and journeying with you through your theatre and artistic life. I appreciate I appreciate you having me. I apparently had stuff to say, so it was a pleasure. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.